Hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 2. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore." These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, and heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses, when he had become of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe, 
when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Dear congregation, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We read that chapter. Hopefully it's obvious as to why as we begin a series on church history. Because right there in the text of our scriptures in Hebrews chapter 11, we have before us the history of the church. We have a church history, as it were, of the church of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament dispensation of the covenant of grace right there before us. So as we begin tonight, we're going to be doing a series basically on highlights in church history. And tonight we'll be asking the question, trying to answer it, why church history? And that's what we'll do in our introduction. Caleb, myself, and Pastor Joel have discussed a few different things of ideas we might want to do, possibly look at one theologian or a, a whole chunk of theologians and, and a, whole, a whole period of church history at a time, or maybe trace some of the common heresies throughout the church or some highlights of some kind. So we might be doing character studies, biographical studies, or more broad studies throughout these eight uh, lessons that we will do. So we're looking at why church history tonight as an introduction. I think it's important to remember that the Bible gives us a doctrine of history. Because in a lot of churches, you're not going to hear lectures on church history. You're not going to have an entire series done on church history. And it's in Reformed churches, we're a little bit better about this, where we study church history a little bit more. And even then, sometimes we're a little bit slanted in our study of church history. But by and large, history in our day and age isn't studied much at all. And then you go into the evangelical church, and church history isn't valued a whole lot. And there's not a lot of interest in church history. A lot of evangelicals think maybe church history began with Billy Graham, and that's as far back as they'll look. But we understand that it does go back farther than that. As we just read, it goes back all the way to the beginning, doesn't it? Those in the form tradition can be a little bit better about it, but I think it's still important that we have to understand why we are studying church history. Because even when you attend a church that will do a series on church history like this, it still might be murky as to, well, why are we doing a study on church history? Why are we taking time away from you know, very important, valuable time we could be spending in the, any book of Scripture and talking about church history? Why is this relevant? Some think church history started no further back than Billy Graham. We know that's 
erroneous. But on the other side, we have those who basically only want to say church history get to guys like Luther and Calvin and the Reformation. And that's the slant on the other side for us Reformed believers, that we just stick to our, our, our one tradition. We get locked in and all we want to do is think about and talk about the Puritans. I'm guilty of that, right? And all we want to do is talk about the Reformers as if that's when the church started. But we have to remember that the church goes all the way back to the beginning as we just Read. So to get the most out of studying church history and to answer the question, why would we study church history, we really do need a theological grounding for church history, a doctrine of history, a biblical doctrine of history. And the Bible does provide us with a theology or a doctrine of history. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul told the believers in Corinth to pay close attention to the various historical incidents and details that are recorded in the Old Testament. He said, now all these things happen to them as examples. He's talking about the wandering in the wilderness. When the Israelites had come out of Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness. They've been baptized into Christ in the Red Sea. They drank from the rock that followed them in the wilderness, which Paul also calls Christ. But then some of them rose up to play. They, they grumbled against God. They were discontented against God. And God sent serpents among them. And God punished them. And Paul says, all these things have happened to them as examples that they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It was the story of God's dealings with his people. And Paul is now applying this to the believers in Corinth. God's people today, here in the the 60s AD, Paul is saying to those in Corinth, had much to learn from God's dealings with his people in the past when they were coming out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. When the Israelites were about ready to enter the promised land, Joshua ordered the construction of a pillar that was made from 12 stones which were taken out of the Jordan River. And he said this to the people in Joshua 4, 21-24, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. All, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now there's something very interesting and helpful in that passage. What Joshua tells them to say to their children when their children ask about this pillar that they are to build, he should say, for the Lord your God dried up the rivers, just as he delivered us. So as they're looking at this, this pillar, the children are looking at this pillar, they're to be taught about what God had done for his people, what he had done for them, and thus also for the children. So the study of history is baked into, and the importance of history for remembering what God has done in the past to aid us in the present is baked into the Bible itself. Likewise, after the defeat of the Philistines, you recall Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far Yahweh has helped us, 1 Samuel 7, 12. Some of you might be aware of this, others might not. You, you might wonder why Ebenezer Scrooge is in here, and there's that famous hymn that we sing, and what, what's he doing? Now we're thinking of a Christmas carol. What, what, is an, what is an Ebenezer? It's actually an Ebenezer, a stone of help, and a lot of your Bible translations will actually have a, 
a, uh, a footnote there to, to let you know, but it's a, it's a stone of help. They're to, to look to this stone and remember how the Lord had helped them. Remember how the Lord had delivered them from judgment, had delivered them from their enemies. So the study of history and the remembrance of what God has done in the past is to help us now. The Bible gives us a reason, a theology, a doctrine for studying the past, for studying history. Seeing how God has worked in his people before us gives us confidence that he will do so again through us now. We're all familiar with that saying, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. But also those who fail to study the acts of God in the past will fail to know the God of the present. Moreover, church history serves as a, another gracious means to us. Another, another helpful thing about studying church history is it gets us off, gets our eyes off of ourselves and off of the present. We get so locked into the present, so locked into what's going on in the news, so locked into the debates that are current to us, not just in politics, but even within the, the church and in our own lives and the, the fights and stuff that are going on in our, in our families, our extended families. We get so locked into us here and now in the present that studying church history helps to liberate us from the tyranny of the, prison, of the present, as one, um, one theologian said. C.S. Lewis said this on why studying old books, and I think this applies also to history. This is in his preface to Athanasius on the Incarnation. Quote, Every age has its own outlook. It is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. All contemporary writers share, to some extent, the contemporary outlook, even those, like myself, who seem most opposed to it. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer than they, then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them." End quote. So you see what Lewis is doing here. Is he's saying we can't see, we're short-sighted in our present. And if all we do is read the books of the present, all we do is listen to the sermons of the present, all we do is think about the issues of the present and the categories of the present, we actually will be hampered and won't be able to see through the present, be able to see the issues and how to deal with them, the solutions for these issues. So C.S. Lewis says we need to read old books, and that's obviously part of, of church history, but also just studying the past. Studying what God has done in the past will help us now in the future. All right, I want to look tonight at seven benefits of studying church history. Seven benefits of studying church history. The first benefit is that it connects us to the church Catholic. The study of church history connects us to the church Catholic. We are not the first Christians, and probably, depending on your eschatological view, we are not the last Christians. We're not the first Christians, and we're probably not the last Christians. The study of church history is the study of the lives of our fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. This is the study of our own family 
history. They've gone before us, and one day we shall join with them. That's why it's an important. It connects us with our brothers and sisters who have, been, who have been in the presence of God, who have left this earth, who have left their bodies here until the day of resurrection long ago. But they're still our brothers and sisters. They still belong to the one church that we do. There is only one church made up not only of those who profess faith in Christ Jesus here on earth, but also of those who have gone before us into glory. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, a few verses later than when we left off in our reading, verses 22 through 24, we read, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. This is the church that we belong to. This is the church that we've been called to. And members of that church, our fellow members of that church, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us have passed ahead of us, yet they remain our brothers and sisters. So we're, we're studying our own family history when we study church history. In our hyper-individualistic context, I think this is imperative. This is imperative to remember that it connects us to the church Catholic. Augustine lived 1,600 years ago in Africa during the time of the Roman Empire. It's easy to feel really disconnected when you think of it in those terms, really disconnected from him. Yet, he is our brother. He is our brother, and we're going to spend an eternity with him. We're going to be in the new heavens, the new earth, both in resurrected bodies, glorified bodies, together forever. He is our brother. No matter how distant we feel from him, from history and culture, Feeling a sense of connection with the church victorious, those who have gone before us, also helps us feel a sense of connection with the church militant, those who are here on earth. Just as these men and women of the past, who are now in glory, lived in a different time than us, lived in a different culture than us, speaking different languages than, than us, eating different food than us, working different jobs than us, and sometimes, yes, believing very different things from us are our brethren, so too are Christians living today. The church militant here on earth are also our brethren. The more we can see the church as an organic whole, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, also helps us to see that we have brothers and sisters here. Some of them speak very different languages than us. Some of them have very different cultures than us. Some of them look very different from us. Some of them believe some things that we might think are pretty wacky, but they're still our brothers and sisters, and we have to remember that. And the more we understand and can, and can, can see a familial connection with those who've gone before us in the victorious church the more, I think, we'll have love and charity and, fa and familiarity with those who are here on the church militant with us. They're our brethren as well. 
And this applies to our brethren who differ from us even in our own country. The Pentecostal is our brother, is our sister. They believe some things that we would reject, and we believe some things that they would reject. But there's one Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Lord. There's one church, and that'll all get sorted out. None of our theology is perfect. That's the difference between our theology and God's theology, isn't it? But the first thing to note is that the history of the church is the story of God's dealings with our own family. And all of us have a chapter in that book. Secondly, the study of church history gives us a proper view of Christian doctrine, or at least helps us to have a proper view of Christian doctrine. As we study the lives of our brethren throughout history, we cannot avoid studying the beliefs that they held to, the things they taught. One thing we will notice when we begin studying church history and we begin studying the lives of these men and women is that Christians have believed a variety of different things throughout history. Some things that might make us feel uncomfortable, things that we would think, how could they possibly believe that? Where were they getting that idea? But you know what? They would look at us and say the same thing. We have to recognize the development of Christian doctrine throughout history. One thing the study of church history will teach us is that the systematization of Christian doctrine is by no means monolithic. It's by no means monolithic. This is because Christian doctrine did not arise in some kind of vacuum. The crystallized, systematic formulations of Christian doctrine, like the ones we find in the creeds and in our Reformed confessions in their more mature form, arose progressively, providentially, and organically throughout history. But sometimes, I think, especially as Americans, I know this is true in my own life, when I first started, when I I first became a Christian, I thought just everyone always believed whatever it was I believed right then. Whatever I had been taught, that's what Christians had always believed, and they'd always believed it the same way that I believed. I thought there was just one kind of way of viewing things, one kind of doctrine, but we have to understand the development of Christian doctrine throughout the centuries. Many people are ignorant where we got the Bible from, like it floated down from heaven, bound in in goat skin, and it's got three ribbons, and it's got thumb index, and, and it's in verses and chapters, and it's on luxurious European Bible paper, but that's not how we got the Bible, is it? So too, a lot of people have the same kind of misconception when it comes to the idea of Christian theology and how Christian theology arose and developed. There's, there's no heavenly Christian dogmatics book, some Christian system, systematic theology that's in heaven that the angels protect that we can go consult. It's just simply not like that. The church has had to develop doctrine from the Bible, no doubt. But the church has had to work these things out because of the things that's faced throughout history. The systematization and articulation of biblical doctrine developed throughout history, usually in response to controversy or error. Usually in response to controversy or error. Uh, one example I can, I can think of is the Council of, of Nicaea. They're responding to the Arians, which said that, who had taught that Jesus was not divine. Jesus Christ was not divine. He was not equal with the Father. And so as they went back and forth, arguing, the Council of Nicaea decided to use a a word, a a non-Bible word. Mind you, it's it's used once in the Bible, but it's not used in the way that we use it in our creeds and our confessions. The Council of Nicaea said that Jesus Christ was 
homoousia with the Father, of like or of, of same substance with the Father, and the Arians were teaching that Jesus Christ was omiousion with the Father, of like substance with the Father. Just one letter difference, omo versus omi. And that was, the, that was the development of that doctrine. Is that doctrine drawn from the Bible? Of course. And the Council of Nicaea was saying this, but the only way that we can, we can really make it clear as to what we're teaching and that what we are teaching is found in the Bible and make it clear f- uh, over against what the Arians are teaching is to develop this word and use it in a way that it's not used in Scripture, use it in a way that hasn't been used before. That's the development of doctrine. So if we think that people have just always confessed the Nicene Creed, well, no, not before 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea, right? That's when it arose. And so Christian doctrine derived from the Bible has, has to be argued about, has to be thought about, has to be formulated, and that's been an entire process throughout church history. Different problems, cultures, questions required development and careful thinking throughout church history. We even see this in the, the book of Acts. The kind of questions, the kind of apologetic responses, the kind of preaching, the kind of cultural milieus that the apostles in Jerusalem are dealing with are very different than Paul in Athens or Paul in Mars Hill, right? These are different cultures that are, that are being put face-to-face with Christianity. And so there's different problems, there's different questions, and there's different responses even in the Scriptures. So we should not look back in history and turn every heavy-hitting theologian that we like into a member of the OPC. That's really just not something that we would do. That's anachronistic, and it's not true. But too often, we do that. As we heard this past Lord's Day evening, even the doctrine of justification, even the doctrine of justification, as articulated by Luther, Calvin, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Standards, did not exist in its mature articulation at every point in history. Caleb was not able to get into all the details surrounding that, but it was something that was developed, ironed out, as it went forward in church history. Something that Christians had to, in response to different errors, in response to different problems, continue to iron out and narrow down and systematize and crystallize until we have it as we have it in the Westminster Standards, Heidelberg Catechism, and the Reformation. I ran into this same kind of problem a lot in Reformed Baptist circles. There's a tendency to rebaptize important theologians. They would do this a lot with John Owen. If John Owen had just followed through with his doctrine of the covenant, if he had just been consistent, like I am, he would have become a Baptist. If, he, if it hadn't been for the political, ecclesiastical situation at that time, then this or that theologian would have professed exactly what we believe. But this is not unique to Reformed Baptists. That's not, that's not a, just an excuse to, to rib on Reformed Baptists. This is not, not unique to Reformed Baptists. Let's just say this. Augustine was not a Westminster man. He was not. He did not hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And however much we try to squeeze him into that, we cannot get that ox into the teapot, can we? Augustine paved the way for a robust articulation of the doctrine, biblical doctrine of predestination, no doubt. But his doctrine of the church also paved the way for later papist abuses. 
In fact, John Calvin is often described as liberating Augustine's doctrine of election from his doctrine of the church. Until the late 19th and early 20th century, Roman Catholic theologians rejected any study of the history of doctrine, the history of dogma. Because how could they acknowledge that there's such a valid study, such a valid field? If they've always held to the same, the same teachings that the apostles have handed down all throughout history, if they admit that there's been, there's been development even within their own tradition, even within their own communion, there's been development in doctrine. That kind, of th- that kind of throws a wrench into a lot of their own doctrine, doesn't it? So it wasn't really until the late 19th century, 20th century, that Roman Catholics even started engaging in the, the, this field of historical theology. But Protestants have always recognized the need to study historical theology. And if we lose that, we're going to fall into a host of errors and end up having a lot of issues. By studying the church's theologians and the doctrines they systematized, we will avoid what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That is, thinking that every Christian, and what chronological snobbery would look like in this case, is thinking that every Christian throughout history has always believed the exact same things as us in the same way, and if they didn't, then they weren't actually Christians like we are Christians. Uh, some Baptists, I think the Landmark Baptists specifically, have, uh, have a whole theory about this called the, the, trail of, the Trail of Blood. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that, where you can, you can look back through the martyrs throughout church history, and all of the martyrs throughout church history, were, they, they turn into independent fundamentalist Baptists. And that doesn't work any better for us to look back in history and see uh, Machen and Machen Jr. and Machen's great-great-great-grandfather all the way back through church history either. Third, the study of church history teaches us how to avoid error. It teaches us how to avoid error. There's nothing new under the sun. This is especially true of the rise of pernicious errors within the church. In Paul's day, even, he writes that there were false teachers who set out to corrupt the word of God, 2 Corinthians 2.17. As we know, many of the New Testament epistles were written to address heresies. They were written to address false teaching and error. The, the first epistle of John was written in large part to combat an early form of Gnosticism. Paul writes to combat the false teaching that Christ had already returned in 2 Thessalonians. There was a host of issues that were already going on, a host of errors that were already going on in the scriptures themselves in the New Testament era. Many of the cults that have arisen in our day and many of the false doctrines that are being promoted in our day have already been dealt with in the past. So if we cut ourselves off from studying church history, we won't even be aware that these these errors, these heresies, these cults have already been answered. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses hold to a form of Arianism or the ancient subordinationist heresy which taught that Christ was a created being, as we just said, not co-equal with the Father, having the whole divine essence, as our confession puts it. Oneness Pentecostals simply teach a reheated, uh, a reheated modalism. Oneness Pentecostals teach a reheated modalism. One, the, the Jehovah's Witness is a denial of Christ's divinity, and the other is an overemphasis of Christ's divinity to the, to the point where there is no other person than Christ within the divine being. That would be what Oneness Pentecostals teach. Modern evangelicalisms, this a few years ago with Andy Stanley, but others have followed in, in line as well. Modern evangelicalisms, quote-unquote, unhitching of the Old Testament reeks of Marcionism. 
But it's, it's, it's really difficult to find modern, heretical, or heterodox views that have not been dealt with in one way or another by Orthodox Christians in the history of the church. A, a study of church history opens us up to these errors and how the Orthodox Christians have responded in the past. So we're not blindsided by what we think is some new error that we've never heard of before. There's already been answers provided for most of the errors that you hear about that have gone about. It also teaches us how to not make the same mistakes as our fathers made again. The study of church history teaches us how to avoid error, not only in what doctrines, false doctrines, heresies, those kinds of things have come along, but also by looking to the lives of our Christian heroes, by looking to the lives of our Christian mothers and fathers, we can look at their lives, study them, and not make the same mistakes that they made. We can learn as much from the mistakes of our heroes as we can from their victories, and sometimes even more. While many of the Christians we look at in church history were great men, it remains true that they were only men, and the best of men are men at best. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Chrysostom, the Westminster Divines, Spurgeon, Whitfield, and Machen were all sinners, and they would be the first to remind us of it. These were great men, but they were not by any means perfect men. And while hindsight is 2020, we want to be careful of being critical of Christians in the past, because we can see their errors a lot easier now that their lives have completed on this earth. And while hindsight is 2020, we, we can learn lessons from Luther's rash divisiveness towards the Reformed and his engagement with Zwingli and cutting off fellowship with the Reformed. And that's why we got the Reformed and the Lutherans. At first you said Protestants, and they were all called Lutherans. But then when Luther and Zwingli met and they had their falling out, and Luther anathematized Zwingli and the Reformed, that caused an entire division within Protestantism. So we can learn lessons from Luther's rashness. We can learn lessons from Luther's support of the king against the peasants' revolt, which led to vicious sacralism, where there were Anabaptists, ones who were not teaching heresy, but Anabaptists at the time that died in prison because of, and Luther supported such things as letting Baptists die in prison because they were not Lutherans. We can learn from Calvin's outbursts of anger, we can learn from David Brainerd and William Cooper's unbridled introspectiveness and self-pitying. We can learn from the Presbyterian support for the execution of King Charles. We can learn from Samuel Rutherford's uncharitable and unfounded condemnation of Richard Baxter. We can learn from William Carey's abandonment of his family in the name of mission work, quote-unquote. And we can learn from Machen's proud rejection of counsel that led to his early death. We can learn from the warts of our heroes. We can look at these, the lives of these men and these women in, in church history and not only learn from the good they teach us, but also from the wrong things they did. And we can, the whole goal is to not make the same mistakes that they did. Church history teaches us how to avoid these errors in both belief and practice. Fourthly, church history teaches us Humility. It teaches us humility. As we just saw, those greater than us 
those greater than us in many ways, fell into grievous sins and even into some pernicious errors. We must therefore take heed to ourselves. But what I want to highlight here when we study church history is something you'll see, and we don't want to become hagiographal and just put these people on a pedestal, but it is true that some of the, the reason why only certain people's biographies have remained with us is because God did amazing things in the lives of these individuals. And it's amazing what some of these men did with so little, especially in comparison with the great tools that we have today. Augustine, it is said that the only person who's ever read everything that he wrote is he himself. Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, he used four amanuenses. So he would stand and talk while he had four people seated in front of him with quills and I guess what you could call paper, and they would transfer that later on, what they wrote there later on to, to leather, and that's how they would write. But he, he would have four people sitting in front of him, and he would walk to each one in front of each one, and he would be writing four books at once, usually on four different topics. So he would give a paragraph to the guy who's writing commentary on the Gospel of John. And then he would go to the next guy, and he's engaging, you know, summa contra gentiles. He, he's, he's giving his apologetic arguments against the Muslims, against the Turks, and against the Jews, and against heretics. And then he would go to the next guy, and he's writing a book on Aristotle. Then he would go to the next guy, and he's writing his famous Summa Theologicae, his systematic theology. And he would give a couple paragraphs, and he was able to do all of this. That, that's incredible to me. He could go from one guy, and he, and he could consistently, okay, where was I? Okay, back. And he could just go for, and write four books at once. It's amazing. Tyndale, William Tyndale, I have did an entire study on him, a biographical sketch on him. He translated the Bible with no modern aids. He would have a dictionary, maybe. And he was on... He was on the run for his life while he's doing it. It's hard enough. You can, you can, any of you who've studied Greek or Hebrew, or you could ask Caleb or myself afterwards, uh, how difficult it is to try to translate something for a class in the comfort of your own home or a coffee shop. Imagine doing it while on the run from, from people who are trying to kill you and without any helps. And Tyndale did this. Think of Martin Luther, the English edition of his works, which is not as large as his German edition, which is 60 plus volumes and it's unfinished. The amount this guy wrote is insane. It's amazing what Luther was able to do. And he wrote on a vast array of subjects as well. Everything from the education of children to, to political issues to commentaries and theological tracts. Calvin, his institutes, plus his 22-volume commentary, plus seven volumes of tracts and letters. And that's still not everything he wrote. Owen's 23 volumes. William Carey, who I just criticized him a moment ago, I think rightfully, about his abandonment of his family to go to India. But while he was in India, at least he was productive, he translated the Bible into 36, 36 languages of India. 36 from the original languages, with no modern helps to speak of. The amazing thing, all these men did it without any modern linguistic tools, search engines, Bible software, or even really concordances. They didn't have Duolingo. They didn't have Pimsleur. They didn't have Logos. They didn't have Accordance. And they didn't have smartphones that if they didn't know how to translate something, they could just type it in. Or if they didn't know how to uh, find something, they could type it in. They knew the Bible. Like Bunyan, if you pricked them, they would bleed Bible. 
Many of them knew the Bible better in the original languages than they did it in their own native tongue. In fact, John Wesley had to make sure that he wrote his sermons out in manuscript form for specifically for his scripture references because when it would come time for him to quote scripture, he would get stuck because he knew it better. He knew his New Testament better in Greek than he did in English. So he needed to make sure that was all in front of him while he was preaching. Open Calvin, if you've read his institutes or his commentaries. He's constantly quoting from Augustine, Chrysostom, the Greek and Roman classics, Virgil and Homer are, are across his pages as well. And he's quoting all these. Well, why is that amazing? Anybody can quote anyone. Well, the thing is, he did this in an age where there wasn't Logos, where there wasn't Google. I mean, when, I, when I want to try to find, in a couple of weeks, I'm probably going to do Chrysostom. The next time I, I speak uh, on a Wednesday, I'm probably going to do the life of Chrysostom. I'm not sure yet. But say I do Chrysostom, and I want to do a study of Chrysostom, I can pull up in my Logos the complete works of Chrysostom, everything that he's ever written that's been translated into English, I have in my, in my computer, on my cell phone, and I can then go to the search part of that for Chrysostom, and type in a word or, or a phrase, and they'll give me everything he did on that instantly. But Calvin, as he's quoting in his commentaries and in his institutes, doesn't have that. That means he knew those books also. Not just his Bible, but he knew how to go and find these quotes. It's amazing what these men did, and that seriously humbles us. And beyond our humility, uh, Caleb and I were talking about this on uh, the, this past Lord's Day afternoon, there are also people that God raises up in church history, not for imitation, not even really to humble us, just for enjoyment. I think he seriously just raises them up just for us to enjoy. Don't try to imitate these kinds of people. Just enjoy what God did through them. Think of people like Charles Spurgeon. He's a pastor at age 16. If you read anything by Spurgeon. It's just, it's just eloquence, just falling out of his mouth. He couldn't, he couldn't help it out of his pen. His writing output, he is said to have written more than any other Christian author in history, period. In his lifetime, and he died when he was 56, he, he, he started and oversaw over 66 organizations and ministries on top of a huge megachurch that he, that he pastored in England, in London. George Whitfield. I mean, this is fake, right? There's, clouds of, or there's crowds of 30,000, 30,000 in front of him. He could be heard preaching to all of them, and he could be heard preaching up to 10 miles away, Benjamin Franklin, not a fan of Calvinism or, or, or Christianity, by the way. But Benjamin Franklin said he could hear uh, George Whitfield preaching clearly 10 miles away. That's not real, right? But it did happen. That's what happened. Everyone says that's what happened. That's amazing. That's like a superpower. This this is just for our enjoyment, for us to go praise God that he raised up people like that. That's amazing. Or John Calvin, he could lecture in Latin to his students from Greek or Hebrew with no notes and then walk across the street and preach in French from either Hebrew or Greek with no notes. It's not fair. (laughs) Number five. Church history, it convicts us. So it teaches us humility, and it also convicts us, number five. We, we study the lives of those who are willing to give it all. Can we not give more than we do? The, the history of the church is full of, full of the stories of men, women, and children, faithful Christians who are willing to give up luxury, comfort, prestige, advantage, life, and limb for the sake of 
of Christ. Those who left homes, businesses, family, church to go to strange faraway lands that the banner of Christ might fly there just as it did at home. And then sometimes I have a hard time leaving my bed to go to church. You see what these people did in church history. You see what our brothers and sisters did in church history and the, the lengths they were willing to go to be faithful. And then there's, there's, there's Lord's Day mornings where I would rather just not get up that early, right? We especially think of the long march of those who were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, Revelation 6-9. And that march is continuing today. Here's an example of one of them. I think I've given this uh, in my series of sermons on Revelation, but I'll give it to you again. Polycarp's martyrdom. Polycarp was uh, an, a, a disciple of the apostle John. And this is what happened at his, his martyrdom. This is an account from it. He would not budge when the proconsul was trying to get him to deny Christ. The Roman official is trying to get him to deny Christ because Polycarp is an atheist. All Christians are atheists, according to the Romans. And so the proconsul is trying to get him to uh, deny Christ. He urges him harder and harder. Take the oath and I'll let you go. Curse Christ, he said to Polycarp. Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When the proconsul kept insisting, swear by the divine power of Caesar, Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the divine power of Caesar, as you say, and if you pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the Christian message, arrange a meeting and give me a hearing. I have wild animals, the proconsul said. I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. Call them in, Polycarp replied. For we are not allowed to change from something better to something worse. Scorn the wild beasts, and I'll have you burned alive if you don't change your mind. Polycarp responded, You threaten with fire that burns for a short time and is soon quenched. You don't know about the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. End quote. That's how he responded to this Roman official who was trying to get him to deny Christ an amazing thing. English, there was an English father shortly after Tyndale's New Testament is printed in 1525. He translates the New Testament from Erasmus's Greek, uh, Greek New Testament into English. He smuggles it into England and, he, and it starts to circulate. And there's an English father who got a hold of, uh, I think, a few leaves, maybe, of Matthew, and it had the Lord's Prayer in English. He, he devoured this, this chunk of the Bible in English. First time I'd ever seen something like this. And, and he devours it, he, he studies it, he memorizes it, and he teaches the Lord's Prayer to his children and to his wife. And the authorities come and they take him, they say, have you taught the Bible in English uh, to, to your children? And he denied it. He said, no, I haven't. And he lied, and they let him go. And he got back, and he was so convicted after talking with his wife about it, that he said, I have to go back, and I have to tell the truth. And so he went back, and he told the truth, and they said, all right, well, we're going to put you to death for this crime. If you don't recant, because you need to recant and give, say that you'll never do it again, or we're going to put you to death. So he said, well, I'm going to keep teaching people the Bible in English and keep teaching my children the Lord's Prayer in English. And so he uh, was put to death, and as he's marching to the stake where they were going to burn him in the town square, his children are there, lined along the sides, and his wife and his family and his friends and co-workers, and they're, they're crying out for him, and he wouldn't even look at them. 
He just looked at the looked at the stake that he was going to, singing hymns of praise to God. So you study the, the lives of people like this, and you really think maybe I can give maybe I can give more than I do. We're, we're humbled, we're convicted. Think of men like Athanasius, who endured five exiles for standing up for the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Men like John Patton, who left Scotland to labor alone in obscurity for decades among cannibals in the New Hebrides, just so that they might come to know Christ. And he was there for decades before he saw any fruit, and he almost died all the time. But we also think, not just of the martyrs and and those kind of people, we also think, when we're studying church history, of the multitude of everyday Christians who faithfully filled these men's churches and served God in their cities. Their stories are unwritten. Their stories are known to God alone. But many of their names will be far more honored in the last day than even the most famous earthly men who served them. I think that's one of the true applications of Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It does not have to mean martyrdom. It does not have to mean moving away to a foreign land and giving your lives to cannibals to try to save them, to try to preach the gospel to them. That's not what it always has to mean, but too often we think that's what it means. And I think it's a cop-out for us as evangelical American Christians. I really do. Where we go, well, I can never do what those great people of the past did, so I'm not going to do anything. I'm fine right where I'm at. No, living faithfully, denying yourself, taking your cross and following me, also looks like living every day, quorum Deo, before the face of God, for the glory of Christ, faithfully serving in every place God has called you, as a, as a mother at home, as a father, as a, a worker, as an employee, as a, as a boss, a, a, an owner. That's what it looks like, being a faithful citizen, being a faithful church member, being faithful right where God has put you. It, you know what that requires to be faithful in that? Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and dying daily following Christ. It doesn't always just have to mean we're giving ourselves to martyrdom. It doesn't always have to mean that I'm going out and doing these great things. Number six, the study of church history motivates us to persevere in hardship. To persevere in hardship. Sickness, poverty, difficulty, persecution, opposition. None of this stuff is new to Christianity or to the church as we read from Hebrews 11. People have been suffering these things and enduring hardships for the cause of Christ. Moses suffered for the cause of Christ. That's what the text tells us. For the cause of Christ. The church has always met opposition, has always suffered difficulty in this life. That's nothing new to us. Our mothers and our fathers faced hardship from without and also from within. So when we're, looking at, when we're looking at church history, another thing we can do when we're reading these books or studying these things is go, well, they don't know what it's like. They don't, they don't know how hard it is nowadays to, to deal with this or that thing. But actually, they've always dealt with these kinds of things. Nero, remember, lit his gardens with human torches, flaming crucified Christians. Athanasius woke up and found the world Aryan, hence that famous phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Tyndale translated the Bible while on the run for his life. Luther had gout and piles. 
Calvin had migraines, an upset stomach, kidney stones, and was persecuted. And in that day and age when they had the worst medicine you could think of in Switzerland in the 1500s, he thought the, the remedy to his, to his migraines and to his stomach aches and to his, to his kidney stones was to not drink as much water, to not sleep as much, get no more than three hours, he thought, and don't eat. That will help. No, that led to an early death is what it did. But these people understood what it's like to suffer with debilitating bodily pain, depression. You think of uh, Charles Spurgeon, who had suffered with melancholy. And he said sometimes he would find himself underneath his desk weeping like a child, and he didn't know why. So the people of, our, uh, of church history knew what it was like to suffer these things. Machen, for instance, watched his beloved Presbyterian church abandon the faith. American Christians will respond, but things have never been this bad for the church. Well, we're just starting to move from a pagan a post-Christian culture to a pagan culture in the West. But we have to remember that our forefathers in the early church faced an entirely pagan culture. They not only faced persecution, but they were vexed by the wickedness of the culture. You know what they had in their day as well? Abortion, human sacrifice, idolatry, homosexuality, pedophilia, totalitarian governments, etc., etc., etc. Nothing is new for the church. So we can look back to the past of our fathers and mothers and what they endured and how they suffered to be encouraged as well, to persevere in hardship. Christ has been supporting and upholding his people all this time, and he shall not stop now. Lastly, this number seven, the study of church history is ultimately a work of doxology and communion with God. The New England Puritan Cotton Mather wrote a large two-volume work, The Banner of Truth Trust, republished it. I'm, I'm always on the search for it. Look on eBay trying to find a copy that's less than $200, but I can never find it. It's a large two-volume work called Magnalia Christi Americana, the wonderful or, or glorious works of Christ in America. He wrote this in 1702. It's a history of America up till his present time. And he titled it, The Wonderful Works of Christ in America. He rightly saw that history is not ultimately about what men do, what people do, what we do, but what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. It's the work of Christ. We should view all of church history this way. As, as we study church history, we are learning about what God has done in the hearts, minds, and lives of his people, our brothers and sisters. So I, so I encourage you, as you as you study church history, pray and worship. Read a few pages. Read, read till your heart is melted or touched by something. And then stop and sing a psalm of gratitude. Ask God to keep you from familial sins. The, the, the sins of your fathers and, and mothers and brothers and sisters in the past. Ask God to work in your hearts just like he worked in the hearts of those who went before us. Pray God to pour out his spirit upon China, upon Liberia, upon America, just like he did upon Europe in the Reformation. Turn all these little factoids we learn, these little interesting factoids and tidbits about church history, turn these into experiential prayer, meditation, and scripture study. A practical aside, we've talked about adopting a book of the Bible I, I think it's a good idea, too, to adopt a historical figure or a theologian. Everybody can do this. Adopt a theologian from church history. 
Learn from their lives and learn from their writing. Learn from their mistakes, their errors, their successes, habits, practices. Learn about their historical setting, what they were responding to, what they were interacting with, what they suffered, and what they learned. And then attempt to imitate them as they attempted to imitate Christ. I have a section on where to begin. Uh, That's probably not going to... We're not going to have time for that if we want to have time for question and answer or comments. So let's close in prayer, and if there's any time for questions, we will do that. Lord God Almighty, we are again thankful for thy wonderful works throughout history, O God. We are thankful for the work of Christ in thy church, which is his body. O God, we are thankful that we can be part of that body, that we can look back and study not just interesting things, but say the lives of our brothers and our sisters. O Lord, please continue to help us have a desire to learn about our history, to learn about our family. And as we do, let it never be just for and keep us and protect us from the error of studying these facts as facts, and that's it. Help us in them and through this study to see thee, to savor Christ more, to love Christ more, to be encouraged and convicted and taught and motivated and helped by our brothers and sisters of the past, to see thee more, to love thee more, to repent of sin and to Learn from the successes of the past, O oh God. Help us not just to try to repeat the past either as some kind, of, some, kind of, some kind of miracle that we just repeat, but, O oh God, that we would trust Thee here and now just as our fathers trusted Thee in the past. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.